while we're going to look at the Word of God this morning, I want to just mention I woke up this morning really early. I think I, you know, was awake just a little after three in praying and uh, got a message from Dr. Thomas. And he was just sharing a little bit. I've been in contact with him this week. What's really been happening in India? And I want to just commend the church. You continue to give. We're sending him another uh, set of gifts to help them. But can you imagine your church service being shut since March? And like he wrote in his little note to me, he said, closed church, but still an open heaven. And uh, they've had tremendous monsoons. There's been incredible flooding in India. It's created a lot of problems. Villages have been wiped out. Cities have been flooded. Their Bible college got flooded. That's right next to his house, some of you that came to India with me, very close by. Um, it's created a lot of diseases, new diseases in their country right now. So they're, they're in a tremendous crisis time. And yet I don't sense discouragement. I sense encouragement from him. And yet I want to keep praying for India. I've been in contact also with other missionaries. And, you know, this is a very challenging time. A lot of missionary support have dropped because a lot of North Americans' churches have, you know, shrunk in their revenues. And I just want to say to you that you have continued to give very graciously. We have not only continued to maintain our support for our missionaries, we've elevated our support for them during this time. And so I, I'm just so pleased to be able to do that. And so we're really committed to helping people. We're not going to just talk about these things. We're doing it. And I'm saying we're doing it because you're doing it together. We're, we couldn't do it without you. And so we're doing this amazing thing together. So I want to just express commendations to you as a congregation. And uh, boy, you, you can just tell how, how much of a blessing our church family has been to our missionaries at this time. So thank you so much. Well, let's just pray for India this morning. And maybe you're here today and you have some tremendous needs in your life. You know, we serve a God who hears prayer. I want you to know that we serve a God who hears prayer. Are you hearing what I'm saying? You know, the Bible says if we if we uh, this poor man cried and the Lord heard his prayer. You know, as, as we gather together and pray this morning, God's going to hear our cry. We're going to pray for India, and we want to pray for your need, whatever that need might be today. How many here, you have a significant need in your life, and you're trusting God to meet that need? Anybody here? You know, I got my hand up. There's, you know, just, there's always challenges in life, isn't there? And let's believe God to really break through. I, I'm praying for a real outpouring of God's Spirit. I think this is an hour that God can work supernaturally. I think this is the hour where the church rises up. You know, this is the time in that hour of stress and difficulty and crisis. This is the hour that light dispels darkness, folks. This is the, we're the people that have the answer. We have the, we have the hope of the world. We have the person of Christ. He is the hope of the world. He is the light of the world. He's the one we can cast our cares on, and he does care about humanity. Believe me, he does. And he's reflected that by dying on a cross on our behalf. So let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning that you are a gracious Father. I thank you for your compassions and your generosity. I thank you that your mercies are new every morning and your faithfulness is great. I pray for India today. I pray for the believers there. Many are under great persecution. Many are experiencing great trials right now. And yet I sense as I'm in communication, Lord, that there's hope, there's joy, there's victory in their souls, Lord. And, and yet, in spite of all of the things that are happening, their eyes are on you, Father. And that is so exciting. I pray that out of this time of struggle, and we're going to talk about that today, that you are the answer for our fragmented, broken, uh, angry, 
uh, anarchistic, uh, frustrated world, Lord. You're the one that can bring peace. You're the one that can bring joy. You're the one that can bring love into places where hatred is reign supreme. I believe, Lord, that you want to do supernatural things. And I pray today, even in our service, even within our own hearts, that faith would arise. I pray that joy would arise within us, that we would leave this place filled with confidence and hope in a good God who's hearing our cry and is going to walk us through this hour together with us. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen, amen. I'm going to have you turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Proverbs. I've been doing a series from there. We're in chapter 19. And uh, let me just begin by sharing a story of a minister. He was going to park his car in a no-parking zone. See, he had been going to the downtown area in a large center. How many know it's always frustrating? You're a big city. I've been there. You're trying to park a car. He'd, he'd been around this block about 10 times. There's just no parking spaces available. Finally, he got so frustrated. He saw a no-parking zone, but he thought, there's a spot. He pulled in his car. He put a note under the windshield wiper that read, I've circled the block 10 times. If I don't park here, I'll miss my appointment. Forgive us our trespasses. <laughs> when he got back to his car after that little statement, he returned. He found a citation from a police officer along with this note. I've circled this block for 10 years. If I don't give you a ticket, I'll lose my job. Lead us not into temptation. Ah. <laughs> uh, how many recognize that we come at life from a certain vantage point? <laughs> Our own personal needs, right? What we do is truly a reflection of who we are. How many know becoming the right kind of person is critical to finding real satisfaction, meaning, and purpose in life? You know, I think wisdom helps fashion the kind of person we will become. And that's why we're looking at the book of Proverbs right now. Do you know the book of Proverbs, you know, I, I've shared this before if you've been listening to the series, that the Hebrew word for pro, uh, wisdom is chokmah, which is in the feminine gender, and therefore wisdom is seen as a woman, right? And all the ladies are saying amen. But let me even, let me just focus in and say that when the father's talking to the son, he's really talking about a faithful wife. She is depicted as the metaphor of wisdom. Isn't that neat, ladies? So if you're a faithful wife, you know, you're depicted as, you know, a wise person. That's great. But you know, book of Proverbs, that's just one expression of what wisdom is. In the New Testament, God's wisdom is also found in a, in a person. And that person is our Lord and Savior, Jesus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, it says there, it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us the wisdom of God. So here's what I'm going to tell you. If you've met Jesus, you've met the person of wisdom. Isn't that beautiful? So when you and I follow Jesus and we're walking with him, we're on the path of wisdom. And that's what you need to know. And it goes on to say there, that is, Christ is our righteousness. Christ is our holiness. Christ is our redemption. And so Christ is God's wisdom bringing us into a right relationship with him. Now, this is the person, I believe, the wise person has within their hearts a longing and a desire to not only trust God, but to please and honor God. There's, there's, there's a sense that in the heart there's a fear of God. 
And that word that, you know, says, because in Proverbs it says the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And this fear is not some sort of, uh, you know, I'm afraid of God. Like, you know, I, got, I went to the movie and I got frightened. You know, I went to a horse show and I'm scared out of my mind. That's not the kind of fear we're talking about. We're talking about this reverence, this awe, this respect for God that is so important that you and I literally want to please him in every aspect of our lives. You see, that's that's my prayer for you, that you and I will live like that, that our desire in every situation is to bring honor and glory to his name, is to please him, is to do the right thing that God would have us to do so that we could see the right things happening, not only in our own hearts, but in the lives of the people around us. And so when we truly walk in this fear of God, God begins to do a work of bringing us out of brokenness into a place of wholeness. How many think that's a neat journey, coming out of fragmentation and, and brokenness to a place of, of, of uh, wholeness and health and vitality and purpose? I mean, that's what God is trying to bring us into. And yet when I look at our culture today, what am I noticing? And maybe you're noticing it too. I see a lot of anger. I see frustration. I see fragmentation. I see the loss of community. How many are recognizing that? And that's because we've turned our backs on God and we're walking away from wisdom and we're moving into folly. And even though we think we're wise in our own sight, we're making these decisions and we're, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're basically screaming and protesting and we're hurt and we're angry, right? And there's a fragment fragmentation in the human heart and a brokenness, and we think that by, you know, carrying on the way we are, we're going to bring, we're going to come to wholeness. Folks, the only way to come to wholeness is meet the person that can bring healing in your own human soul and, and bring relationships together and bring community together and bring peace into our hearts and joy into our lives, and that's found in Jesus, and that's really what it means to be a person of integrity because to be a person of integrity means that you've become integrated. And that's, the, that's what wholeness means, that on the inner being, you're now united in one. It says, unite my heart, O God, to fear your name. And so many people today are double-minded, and they're, and, they, and they're walking in, in two different directions, and there's a fragmentation on the inside of them. So how in the world, if they're broken and divided within themselves, how can they build unity and community? It's, it's impossible. So we have to, first of all, experience this unifying work, this work of integrity or becoming integrated into our own souls. And that's what wisdom causes to happen. This inner development of personhood affects our relationships and it affects how we see our world. So what we desire motivates us to do the things we do. How many know desire is a very powerful thing? And I'm gonna suggest today that desire can be both good and bad. You can have good desires and you can have not so good desires. And whatever that desire is, is driving you. That's the inner impulse in your life that's leading you and moving you to decide what you're about to do, what you're about to say. And we, we have to take a look at what the scriptures teach about this whole thing. When we stop listening to God's words of instruction, we end up straying from God's path. Do you know that? You know, I, I've been a Christian now. I just said to somebody this morning, 45 years. And I've noticed over the years that people have deviated from the path. That's because they stopped listening to God's word. Listen to what Proverbs 19.27 says. Stop listening to instruction, my son, and you will stray from the words of knowledge. So what is he telling us? That we have to have an open heart. We're going to get to how important that is in my second point this morning. But when we do that, it leads us to making wrong decisions that bring about painful consequences. 
These sinful choices lead to devastation in relationships and ultimately an unhappy life for ourselves. Many of us, we don't see the connection between our decisions and actions which cause our own sufferings. We have kind of a disconnect. You know, how many people right now blame God because of the stupid things they decided to do? You know, isn't that true? It's true. Listen to what Proverbs says. A person's own folly leads to their ruin, yet their heart rages against the Lord. You know, how many people are upset that life hasn't turned out the way they thought it should, but really they've made poor decisions, and now they're all upset and blaming God. Like, why, why is this happening to me? It's like, you know, you and I divorced ourselves from making any sort of decisions. Hmm. So in Proverbs, we see the constant contrast between the wise and the foolish person in relationship to money, in their openness or indifference to correction, in their willingness to accept responsibility for own, their own actions, Hey, we live in a culture today. Nobody wants to accept responsibility. You know, we want to blame everybody else for everything that's going on. That's all we're, we, we love to do that, you know. The wisdom writers uphold certain values that when embraced ultimately lead to a life of integrity or wholeness. How many here want to be on a journey moving towards wholeness? How many here want to experience joy in your heart and peace in your life and healthy relationships and a sense of being a part of building community? Isn't that a great thing? That's what I want. But I think the Bible promises that, and we're going to see that here. So here in Proverbs 19, we're going to examine two powerful values that I think creates integrity or wholeness in our life. So let's take a look at them. The first one is simply the issue of motivation. What motivates us? I think a wise person recognizes that character is a greater value than material wealth. And that's the first one he steps off here in verse uh, 19, verse 1. This is not, as I've said before, a negation of wealth, but rather the need to understand that we don't put our trust in what we possess, okay? Because they can disappear on us. I mean, isn't that true? How many are noticing, like, even the economies in countries are crashing right now? that the value that many people had, what they had is actually diminishing. We're, we're in a diminishing world right now. We, we, we've lived for most of our lives in an ever-expanding economy. Now we're living in a diminishing economy. How many understand what I'm talking about? And what does that mean for us? It means that people are going to have to live on less. And yet people are demanding more because we've gotten so accustomed to so much, it's hard for people to scale back. Isn't that true? We're struggling with that. I can tell people are struggling with that idea. The aim of our lives is not getting things, if you're wise, but becoming the right kind of person. You see, if your motivation, you see, some people's motivation is I'm going to get as much as I possibly can while I'm alive and enjoy as much of life as I possibly can while I'm alive. But you know, it ends up not producing what they think it's going to get because a lot of people have acquired a lot of things and found out they're miserable. And here's what I'm going to challenge us today. You want to become the right kind of person. That should be the goal of our lives. I want to be the person God wants me to become. And what do you think God wants you to become? He wants you to become like him. And we're going to see that. And there's such a joy when all of a sudden we're coming to this place of wholeness and there's a peace and there's a delight and there's a joy because now we're actually becoming happy with who we are. And it's really hard to love people when you don't like yourself. And a lot of times relationships are struggling is because one of the members or both parties don't really like themselves. And so it's, Jesus says to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, if you don't love yourself, it's pretty hard to love your neighbor. You know, 
So how do you world you get to the place where you can actually live with yourself? You got to experience God's forgiveness. You got to experience God's grace in your life. You got to come to this place where your brokenness becomes wholeness and then all of a sudden you have something to you're you're actually can live with yourself and you can actually offer other people something. Listen to what it says here in verse 1. Better the poor whose walk is blameless than a fool whose lips are perverse. Now these are better than type of Proverbs, and this is really meant to be a contrast. And yet, when we look at the word poor versus a fool, we don't really see that as a contrast, do we? But we do see the contrast between blameless and perverse. But let me point out to you, there is another proverb that sounds almost identical to this one, and that's Proverbs 28.6, where it says, better the poor whose walk is blameless than the rich whose ways are perverse. Oh, now we're getting a little insight into the meaning of this proverb. Here, he's talking about the one who's acquiring wealth through deceptive communication. Don't you think there's a lot of people out there acquiring wealth through deceptive communication? You know, somebody's selling you something that's not really what you're getting. Is that happening? Well, I, I think most of us are going, yeah, we're a little skeptical. Anytime I see something that, you know, is too good to be true, I always tell myself, it is too good to be true. <laughs> Come on now, think, you know, people are funny. So the, the issue is the path we're on. What is more important, who you are or what you have? Come on, hit press button number one. A is who I am, that's A. B, what I have. What is more important, A or B? Thank you very much, who you are. And that's the right answer. And as a matter of fact, John tells us in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 to 17, he says, do not love the world. And now he's going to define what the world is. Because, you know, the Bible says God so loved the world. You think God's confused? No, that word world there in John 3, 16 is dealing with the people on the planet. This word world is a system that has an inverted value system who's abandoned God and is living for itself. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love for the Father is not in him. Now he's going to tell you what the love of the world is. For everything in the world, what are they? The lusts of the flesh. Lust is a strong word. It means strong desire. And the, and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life comes not from the Father but from the world. The world and its desires pass away. Here's the problem. They're temporal. Do you, do you think how unwise it is to pursue something that's temporal? It's all going to be gone one day. But whoever does the will of God, it's a forever thing. Wow, is that ever exciting? Do you know one day I was preaching a sermon, I said, this is interesting, I said, you know, archaeologists, you know what they really like? They like finding landfills. You know why? It's a big bonus, because now they know how the people live. This is how they use things. They discover how people were living. I said, do you realize that everything you possess one day will end in the landfill? So my question is, are you working for the landfill? <laughs> you see, because if you're living with the world's values and you're more concerned about what you possess, it's all going to end up there anyways. And so you've given your whole life to acquiring things that don't last. Or you could make the wise decision, even though it takes a step of faith to do that, and say, I'm going to live for the will of God because I know that everything I do in the will of God has an eternal significance to it. 
And I become the kind of person that God originally designed me to be, but sin came in and marred that image and destroyed and sidetracked me from God's purpose and agenda for my life. How tragic. Jewish scholar Michael Fox explains the seeming injustice of Proverbs 19.1 where someone is taking advantage of others and is prospering while the person of integrity is suffering loss. How many say that's not fair? Come on now, let's say it. That's not fair, right? That's not fair. But who promised fairness? We're in a world tainted by sin. Lots of things are unfair. This verse is one of many that recognizes that wealth and poverty do not always go to those who most deserve them. This is not a paradox, as one commentator, whose name is Murphy, calls it, but rather what he calls a faith statement, for it asserts that justice is at work even when invisible. The reasons why an innocent man is better than a dishonest rich one are not stated here, but other proverbs give, the innocent, give, give proverbs or voice to this and says this, the innocent man lives in confidence, the wicked one in anxiety. Look at uh, Proverbs 21, 28, verse 1. I don't have it on the PowerPoint. It says, the wicked flee, though no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as lion. Isn't that great? In other words, you can relax. You don't have anything to worry about. You're not doing anything wrong. You know? Listen to this. He goes on and says, the innocent man is delivered from disaster, and the wicked one takes his place. Proverbs eleven eight: the righteous person is rescued from trouble, and it falls on the wicked instead. The innocent man is remembered after death while the wicked one sinks into oblivion. Proverbs 10, 7 says, the name of the righteous is used in blessings, but the name of the wicked will rot. You know, well, you want to be remembered for all the bad things you did? Or do you want to be remembered for all the good things you did? We have a choice. People, are going to, people have a memory of us. It's true, right? And the list goes on. All the benefits ascribed to righteousness easily outweigh the benefits of wealth. I like that. Better to be poor and blameless than to be rich or to be a fool, which is a morally deficient person, and perverse. What is it that really drives our lives? What's the power and motivation? Proverbs 19.2 says this. Desire without knowledge is not good. How much more will hasty feet miss the way? Now, <clears throat> we can look at this proverb, and when I read it, very straightforward interpretation is simply this. Uh, hasty decisions are often the wrong ones. You could say that, right? I mean, we're making, we desire something, but we're not really, we, we're, we didn't really consider what we're doing. It's not always going to end up being a good decision, and then eventually we're going to miss the path. But the, pro the proverb seems to be challenging us to consider before acting. That's what I get a sense of when I'm reading this proverb. And yet, I think this is saying a lot more. Paul uh, Kopik says, the saying is linked with verse 1 by the repetition of the word good. The Hebrew word is tob. And the metaphor of walking. The two lines work independently and as a pair. Zeal or desire needs the guidance of knowledge or it will walk in a way that is not good. As a matter of fact, it's interesting this word of uh, miss the way. Let me give you a New Testament text that maybe will give us a better idea. Or maybe we need to understand that the word miss the way is the word in the Hebrew, hata, which literally means sin. So it's more than just, you know, oh, I got off on the wrong path. Actually, getting off on the wrong path is sinning. I'm deviating from God's path. I'm deviating from God's will. And listen to what Romans 3.23 tells us in the book, uh, Paul saying, you know, he says there, for all have sinned and fall short of what? 
the glory of God. All have fall short. Fall short. Harmatia is the Greek word. It means you're falling short of the aim. And it's kind of the picture of the archer shooting at the bullseye, and we're falling short of it. That's what sin is, falling short of the ideal, falling short of what God has intended for you and I, which is to do what? To bring glory to God. In other words, the desire of our life should be to bring God glory in our lives. Wow. And it's... Paul Coptic concludes his remarks by saying this. This proverb holds out that patience and caution as knowledgeable companions of desire. In other words, just because we have a desire doesn't mean the desire is right. You know, a lot of times people need to put their desires in check. Because sometimes the desire is healthy, but this isn't the right time. Sometimes the desire is wrong, and it needs to be corrected. Isn't that true? It's wrong desire, you know? So the problem, I'm going to say, is not per se with the word desire, but with the unhealthy or sinful desires that are not for our good or for the good of others, and therefore do not bring glory to God. And most of us, I don't think, see sin as primarily against God. Most of us, we see sin as primarily about how it's wrecking my life. (laughs) You know, that's how we see it. But let me tell you something. If we could get to where David was in Psalm 51, where he says, against thee and thee only have I sinned. David recognized I'm betraying God's favor and goodness in my life by abusing his good gifts and squandering it improperly. What a powerful sense of transformation that comes. Do you know what the greatest longing in our life should be? For God. It makes sense. Listen to what David writes, and he does it in a poetic way in Psalm 42. He says, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? You know, if you want to really evaluate where you are in your journey with God, maybe we have to talk about what's our desire for him? What's our longing? What is it that you want above everything else in life? What do you long for more than anything else? That's what's motivating you. That's what's driving your life. David was saying here, what's driving me is to be with God. Is that powerful? And you know that you're moving towards God when that longing is intensifying. That desire is increasing. You're like that deer panting for the water. Isn't that a powerful image? You know, this is how I long for you, God. I desire you. You know, I can tell how strong that that passion is, you know, because one of our expressions here is developing a passion for God. How important is that? I think it's absolutely critical. You know, I can tell basically by people's, uh, it's harder now in COVID, but you know, you could tell when people are coming to church and they're involved and they want to study the Bible and you can see their passion to get to know God. How exciting is that? I can tell there's a passion there, a desire. That's the kind of hunger that needs to be in our lives. As a matter of fact, Jesus says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these other things will be added to you. Get the right thing in the right place. Get the order right and it affects your life. So often what we do is try to fulfill the longings of our soul with aspects of life that will never truly satisfy. And I love what C.S. Lewis says. He says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can, can satisfy, the most probable explanation is I was made for another world. You, were, you and I were designed for God. You and I are designed to be with him. You know, a lot of people are looking for fully, a full satisfied life on earth. I'm going, it ain't going to happen, folks. 
You know, I have a phenomenal read. It's called Inside Out by Larry Crabb, and he talks about that. There's always be a longing. There'll always be an ache in your soul because you and I were designed to be with God. You and I were designed to be in union with God. You and I were designed to fellowship with God. Sin is an intruder. But you and I are battling this thing called sin. It's battling within ourselves. It's battled around us. We have this intruder in our lives. And that's why I love the book of Revelation, because in that book, it tells me that Jesus is going to conquer sin once and for all. Hallelujah. That you and I are not going to have that battle anymore. We're going to be in union with God. That's truly what it's all about. You know, people want heaven on earth. Well, let me tell you, one day heaven will come down to earth. But Jesus will be at the head of the world then. What a different world that's going to be. One of the key factors in motivation is relationships. I think we're designed by God to be social beings. And there's a deep capacity to love and be loved, to be accepted, right? To be honored, to be respected, to, to live in community, to live in peaceful harmony. Isn't that, isn't that longing like that? It's there. It's within us. How many recognize that doing things with the people we like is more important than anything else? We have these shared experiences how many say it's far richer to do something with somebody than to do it alone? It's more meaningful, way more meaningful, right? We know having these shared experiences, they, they, they help us in our relationships. We gain encouragement, solace, comfort, support. We get inspiration. We can be challenged. Friendship is a com critical component of life. So how does character come into play in our relationships? How many know that if you have healthy character, you have healthier relationships. And if you're broken in your character, you're going to have more unhealthy relationships. How many know that's true? See, this is just basic, you know, relationship 101 stuff. But the Bible's teaching us that. Then he goes on. He says, you know, so often we see that uh, the social conditions of people affect how we relate to them. You know, people that have wealth... It's, it's got an upside and a downside to it. Let's take a look at what it says here. Proverbs 19.4 says, Wealth attracts many friends, but even the closest friend of the poor person deserts them. That's interesting. We'll talk about that. Many curry the favor with a ruler, and everyone is a friend of one who gives gifts. Wonder why. Uh, the poor are shunned by all their relatives. How much more do the friends avoid them? Though the poor pursue them with pleading, they are nowhere to be found. You see, here we see the cost of relationships, and Dr. Longman points out the poor, after all, have problems, and many need help or even generous gifts to survive, whereas the wealthy at least give the appearance of being able to help. So he's saying they have an advantage. We see that. But David Hubbard also points out wealth encourages friendships, not so much because of the rich person's largesse or generosity, but because the rich make no material demands on their friends, so they're easier to be with. You know, you say, well, poor people don't always make demands on your time. I said, but sometimes it's not spoken. Sometimes, you know what I've noticed? Sometimes very wealthy people don't want to be around poor people. And you know why? Because they feel guilty. You know, I got to do something. How can I just let this person, you know, struggle? And that's good that we feel that way. We should do something. We're reminded by the biblical text to help the poor. Whoever's kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will reward them for what they have done. Why, why is our generosity to the poor seen as lending to the Lord? Now, I know there's some teaching out there that if you give to the poor, God's obligated to pay you back. You know? But I'm going to suggest an even deeper thought. I think the reason why the scriptures teach this is because God is so deeply interested in the well-being of all people that when we invest in others, particularly the needy, we are acting on God's behalf. And the idea of lending to the Lord here is not so much that God is now indebted to repay us the money that we've given, but rather to take into account how we've treated others 
And one of the greatest rewards that we get is the kind of person we become, which is generous. And when you and I become generous, we become like God. That's what it means to be godly. We're like him. We're behaving like him. I want to tell you right now, God's generous. So whenever I show, you know, magnanimity of spirit or generosity or forgiveness, I'm behaving like God. That's its own reward sometimes. My character is becoming more like his. How many think that might be a big reward? I think it is. And sometimes we negate how powerful that is. And then we're warned not to discriminate against people who are poor and needy. And if you want to really study, look at what James tells us. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. James goes on to tell us we shouldn't show partiality. We need to treat everybody with dignity and value and respect, regardless of what they're wearing. He goes on, that's what he says in James, you know, just because somebody comes in finely dressed with a gold ring, I, I could probably fit in that category. You can't treat me better. Somebody comes in, it says, with filthy clothes on, and, uh, and they're poor, and you show special attention to the rich person, and you neglect the poor person. He says, you're showing favoritism, and God hates that. You're unlike God. God doesn't show favoritism like that. God loves everybody equally. You know, I'll say it this way. God's an equal opportunity person. It's just the way he is. He just loves us all. You know, we're all his children. Every single person is his kids. Some of them are rebellious, but they're all people that he loves and died for. Let me move on to the second value here is the ability to receive instruction. You know, I just put this down to the issue of teachability. How many think teachability is an important quality in life? We should never get to the place where we, don't, we feel like we've arrived. We should all be on a learning curve. We should all be open to learn, right? Is our hearts open to be guided and even corrected? This is the person who loves not just to gather information. You know what? I find what our culture is doing today, they have a lot of information at hand. They're constantly gathering information. We're just a little weak on application. How many of that's true? And one of the things that I notice is when people have knowledge, a lot of times they start thinking they're doing it. They just have the information. Once you start doing it, it changes everything. First of all, you find out doing is harder than just knowing the information. Has anybody discovered that? You know, I could tell you, I want you to go love somebody. Go, that's a great idea, Pastor. But then when you have to go, you know, help somebody carry their groceries, this isn't such a good idea. You know what I mean? Because we're moving from the, the idea of it to the actual application of it. It changes the, the game plan. And a lot of times we find that's far harder to love people than we realize, you know, and I'll, I'm not saying this in a malicious way. I'm not negating marriage, but I'm just saying, you know, the longer you know somebody and you start to find out all of their issues, friendships or marriages, you start finding out it's actually harder to love that person. And when you find out, hey, I got to accept this person. I love this person for who they are. A lot of times what we're trying to do is change people. <laughs> Come on. Because we, we want it to be comfortable for ourselves rather than just accepting them for who they are and just loving them for who they are. And let God, do the, let God be the change agent. That's not our job. My job isn't changing people. You didn't know that. My job is communicating a message and allow God's spirit to work on your hearts and that God brings about transformation as you cooperate with him. That's the goal. Listen to what he says here. Uh, the nature and benefits of wisdom while also the warning against the perils of folly. He says, listen to advice and accept discipline. And at the end, you will be counted among the wise. Um, Okay, I just skipped over a, either a few verses here. It's okay. Oh, 
Listen, oh, there's the one I just read. Okay. The, the person who gets wisdom, it says, loves life. The one who cherishes understanding will soon prosper. Isn't that beautiful? The Hebrew word for wisdom here can also be translated, he who gets harder sense, loves life. What does it mean? It means you're, you're being good to yourself. It means you're actually discovering this abundant life that Jesus promised. We've already read that one. Let me move on. Stop listening to instruction, my son, and you will stray from the words of knowledge. You know, the word instruction is this Hebrew word, musar, which actually has the idea of listening to instruction, but also receiving correction. It's built into that idea. You know, so, you know, it's one thing to hear words. It's another thing to act on them. Bruce Walkie says, um, basically, it shapes character and quells waywardness. How many, how many think that one of the things we get when we come to church is that we're actually working on shaping our character? That's what we're getting. And number two, it's quelling our waywardness. In other words, it's, it's clipping our wings a little bit and saying, hey, don't edge out over there. Hey, stay on the path here. How many have ever gone out with kids, you know, and you're walking down the street with them and going, hey, hey, got to stay, stay off the road. You know what I'm saying? Anybody had that experience? You're, you're kind of you're helping them along to stay on the path. And how many know there's some people, they just by nature are so inquisitive. They want to go off to the back forward. You got to kind of rein them in and say, hey, 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 whoa, whoa, it's dangerous over there. You don't, you don't know what's over there, you know, but that's our nature. A person's wisdom yields patience. And it is to one's glory to look over an offense. How many know that in our culture today, I would describe our culture today as being impatient. Anybody agree with me? We have a microwave generation. Everything's got to happen instantaneously. You know, if we don't solve a problem in five minutes, what's the deal here? You're just not, yeah, I mean, you have no confidence. You can't get this done in a few minutes. I'm out of here, you know? We are not noted for our patience. How many know that's true? And because of that, it plays havoc in our relationships because we're impatient with each other. It's getting quiet now. I think I'm saying it right because it says it's to one's glory to overlook an offense. In other words, forgiveness is needed. Whoever keeps commandments keeps their life, but whoever shows contempt for their ways will die. We find examples in this chapter of those who deviate or go astray from the path of wisdom in their words and actions. These ad act activities are coming from a lack of heart or a lack of wisdom or a lack of good sense. Proverbs 9, 19.5 says, A false witness will not go unpunished, and whoever pours out lies will not go free. Now notice, in four verses later, false witness will not go unpunished, and whoever pours out lies will what? Will perish. Will not go free and will perish. Here we hear a repetition of this text. Now, some of these guys will argue this was you know, in a legal context, but Jesus is also challenging his contemporaries about the language of evil. And you know what he said? He said, if you know the truth, if you're my disciple, you're going to know the truth, and what's going to happen? It's going to set you free. And he said, but you know, you guys are listening to your father. He says he's a liar. He's always been a liar. As a matter of fact, he has the language of a liar. How many think that's powerful? So, you know, you have to sit down and say to yourself, what language am I using? And so we need to be speaking the truth in love, but we need to be speaking the truth and not speaking the language of Satan. And his language is a language of lies. A foolish child is a father's ruin, and a quarrelsome wife is like the constant dripping of a leaky roof. You know, next verse. Houses and wealth are inherited from prudence. I'm coming back to that. I, 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 I'm not skirting it. I'll, I'll touch on it. 
Houses and wives are inherited from parents, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. Now, I just want you to know those two verses are connected. That's why I'm putting them together, okay? So we see a contrast between the uh, quarrelsome wife and the prudent wife. How many see that? All right. Now, let me just start out by saying a couple of things here. Number one, let's just move from a quarrelsome spouse for a minute. Because it doesn't matter if you're a wife or a husband. If you're a quarrelsome person, guess what's going to happen? You're like a leaky roof. Now, you know, I used to read this, and I thought, what an annoying text, right? It was almost like, you know, it's like a dripping fountain. It might be annoying. But this is actually not saying that. It's saying what? It's like a leaky roof. How many know that if your roofs are leaking, that's actually a bigger problem? Because if you don't address it, what's going to happen is it's going to get into the places, and you're going to have mold build up. It's actually destructive. And so what he's really teaching us there is that if you and I regardless of your husband or wife, regardless of the gender of the spouse, if you're kind of those quarrelsome people, you're going to have relationship issues. You're going to have destructive relationship issues. You're not going to have friends. Your marriages aren't going to last. That's what he's basically telling you here. You've got to deal with this stuff. And then we see this element of this child. And it says here, a foolish child is a father's ruin and now in verse 1926, whoever robs their father and drives out their mother is a child who brings shame and disgrace. You know, I was thinking about this. This is a person who is literally robbing their father and driving out their mother. So this cannot just be a little child. This is probably someone who's a lot older. And what he's basically talking about is someone who's actually taking advantage of their family. This is a warning, you know, that you and I can bring shame and disgrace into our families by our behavior. That's what he's talking about here. Having warned us against neglect or showing contempt uh, for the poor, there's a warning that one's poverty must not come from a lack of diligence. How many think that's important? So we've, we basically said help the poor, right? But let's go to the other side. He goes on to say laziness brings on deep sleep and the shiftless will go hungry. Verse 24, it says a sluggard buries his hand in the dish. He will not even bring it back to his mouth. How many know that's pretty sarcastic? <laughs> Guy's reaching to get something to eat, but he goes, I'm too lazy to put it back in my mouth, you know. <laughs> I mean, he's giving you an image here, right? What is he saying? He's saying, okay, there's people that are poor, not through any circumstance of their own, okay? Not through any lack of diligence on their part. As a matter of fact, I'm going to argue today that the majority of people in our world are poor. I would argue today that the majority of people in many other countries are so poor, they work 12 hours a day for maybe 10 Canadian dollars a day. And the cost of living is almost as high as here, not quite. Can you imagine what that would be like? And they can't change their economic system overnight. So we have an obligation to help people that are poor. We hear that. But on the other side, we can't be going, I'm not going to do anything. Hey, why work if people are going to take care of me? That's the other wrong attitude. You see the two extremes and how wisdom tries to align it. Let me close with this. Let me summarize the ideas that have been brought to us through these Proverbs. Character is the most important thing in life. How many say that's true? Can't, you can't, that's, regardless of our outward circumstances and situations, to be a person of integrity, to honor God and others gives life to our soul. Who we are will affect how we treat other people. A wise person is motivated to know and obey God's word, to listen to wise counsel, and to resist making hasty decisions, and to recognize that all of our plans can only move forward if they are God's purposes for our lives and for the lives of other people. Listen to what Proverbs says. Many are the plans in a person's heart, but it's the Lord's purpose that prevails. 
This should not cause despair. It should not cause resignation. It should not say, why try? God's going to veto my plans anyways. That's not what it's talking about. As a matter of fact, he's basically saying, look, we need to walk in humility and come to God before we launch our great game plan. We need to say, Lord, what is it that you want me to do and help me to get on your page? As a matter of fact, Proverbs 16.3 says, commit to the Lord whatever you do and he will establish your plan. So what kind of a person do you desire to become? How many here say, you know, pastor, I want to be whole. I want to be healthy. I want to be a person of integrity. I want to be a person that fears God. I want to be a person that has a passion for God. I want to do what's right in God's sight. I want to keep walking on this path of wisdom. I want to be part of the solution. I want to be someone who's going to build a healthy relationship with my family, my spouse, my friends, help build community, help strengthen things rather than rip them apart. How many are saying, that's me. I want to be that kind of a person. I hope all of our hands are up because that's who the person we should be. How many here say, I want to avoid the brokenness. Maybe I've already made all these stupid decisions. I'm already experiencing all this brokenness. I want out of this wreck of a life that I'm in. Anybody up for that one? Here's what Jesus says. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. I'm going to give you rest. Don't you love that? Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's stand. We went through a lot of material today. How many go, wow, that was intense. Maybe you need to listen to this again. I don't know. Maybe you need to read this chapter again. I don't know. You know, I've spent days in this chapter. How many recognize the word of God is rich? Isn't that beautiful? Wisdom is a person. How many want to be wise? I do. We come to Jesus. He is our wisdom. You're not going to do this in your own wisdom and strength. You know, I've come to the deep conclusion studying this book. I think the theme of the book can be summarized in three verses. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. He's going to keep you on that right path. Do not be wise in your own eyes. I don't care how long you've been a Christian. I've been a Christian a long time. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Keep trusting. Keep trusting. Keep committing your way to him. Amen? So with every head bowed today, how many here say, you know, Pastor, I recognize there's some broken places in my life. And I want Jesus to come and bring wholeness in those places. Is that you this morning? Just raise your hand and say, Lord, I want to I continue on the journey to wholeness. I want to continue on that journey to be integrated. I want to continue on that journey of integrity. I want to be a part of the solution in our world's broken problems. I want to be that person that brings people together. I want to be a unifying force, amen, and not a polarizing force. You know, that's what we should be as the church. We should be the unifying force in our culture, bringing polarized people together, sharing wisdom. So, Father, we come to you today. We thank you for your amazing grace. We thank you that you are the person of wisdom, Jesus. And we've been invited by you to come to you with all of our burdens and our, all of our questions and all of our brokenness and all of our weariness. And Lord, we're just going to cast every situation that lies before us. We need wisdom, Lord. We need to be the person that you're calling us to become, Lord. We want to be more like you. 
Lord, give us the right motivation. Give us the right heart, Father. Give us a desire after you, Father, more than we've ever had before. Fill us with your life, with your spirit, oh God. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.